I think we really got something in. What do we got? An idea. What idea? An idea for the show. I still don't know what the idea is. It's about nothing. Right. Everybody's doing something. We'll do nothing. <laughs> so we go into NBC, we tell them we got an idea for a show about nothing. Exactly. They say, what's your show about? I say nothing. There you go. I think you may have something here. <laughs> From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today is the kind of girl who doesn't give a shit about what's on the flip side of a record, my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as the unenthusiastic critic. Hello. On today's episode, Nakia and I are sitting down for her first viewing of one of the most influential comedies of the 80s, Barry Levinson's Diner from 1982. But Nakia, for reasons that will become obvious, I thought first we would have a little talk about nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. You know how usually we talk about something? Yeah. Well, this week we're going to talk about nothing. That's different for us, okay? <laughs> Is it that different for Probably us? Probably not, actually. No. I feel like you and I spend a lot of our time... I mean, I think there's a difference between nothing and bullshit. I think we bullshit. I don't know that we... <laughs> what is What exactly is the difference? I think there's substance to bullshit. Oh, I bullshit? Think... You're putting bullshit on a higher plane. I'm putting bullshit on a higher plane than, than talking nothing. About yeah. nothing. Mm-hmm. I don't have an argument here. I feel like both on and off the air, you and I spend a lot of our time talking about nothing. Pretty much. I actually don't think we have our own conversations anymore. We mostly talk in quotes from books or movies or television shows. Or from our previous conversations. Or from previous conversations. Right. So. Like, I can say something that'll refer back to a conversation mm-hmm. we had 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. So we've run out of stuff to talk about. Yes, we are, you know, a show on season 10, <laughs> season 11, and people are like, all right. Time to bring on a, who is it? Cousin... Cousin Oliver. Time to bring on Cousin Oliver. (laughs) (laughs) So the, the, the reason I wanted to talk about nothing is that is really the influence of this movie on film, television, and the culture at large. Barry Levinson had won three Emmys on the writing staff of The Carol Burnett Show in the 1970s, and he had worked with Mel Brooks on Silent Movie and High Anxiety, and it was Mel Brooks who heard his stories about growing up in Baltimore and encouraged him to make them into a movie. Mm -hmm. And Levinson has said that his first reaction was, well, I I don't know what the hell the movie would be about. But this was the genius of Diner, is that it wasn't really about anything. Mm Mm-hmm. As S.L. Prince writes in Vanity Fair, in a piece I'm going to be quoting from liberally, no movie from the 1980s has proved more influential. Diner has had far more impact on pop culture than the stylistic masterpiece Blade Runner, the indie darling Sex, Lies, and Videotape, or the academic favorites Raging Bull and Blue Velvet. Leave aside the fact that Diner served as the launching pad for the astonishingly durable careers of the cast, which includes Mickey Rourke, Kevin Bacon, Ellen Barkin, Paul Reiser, Steve Gutenberg, Daniel Stern, and Timothy Daly, not to mention 
Levinson, whose resume includes Rain Man and Bugsy, Diner's groundbreaking evocation of male friendship changed the way men interact, not just in comedies and buddy movies, but in fictional mob settings, in fictional police and fire stations, in commercials, on the radio. In 2009, the New Yorker's TV critic Nancy Franklin, speaking about the TNT series Men of a Certain Age, observed that Levinson should get royalties anytime two or more men sit together in a coffee shop. Uh, what Franklin really meant, Prince goes on to say, is that more than any other production, Diner invented nothing. Or, to put it in quotes, Levinson invented the concept of nothing that was popularized eight years later with the premiere of Seinfeld. In Diner, Levinson took the stuff that usually fills time between the car chase, the fiery kiss, the dramatic reveal, the seemingly meaningless banter tossed about by men over drinks behind the wheel in front of a cooling plate of french fries, and made it central. And he goes on in this article to make a pretty convincing case about this movie. Um, he quotes all of these people who cite this movie as an influence. Uh, Nick Hornby of Fever Pitch and High Fidelity. Judd Apatow. He points to the films of Quentin Tarantino, in which people just talk about the ephemera of pop culture, the sort of banter. Stephen Merchant, co-creator of the British TV series The Office, says he learned from Diner to feature the boring bits, the bits other shows would cut out. John Apatow said, Anytime I have four or more people sitting around a table, I think about Diner. The naturalness and humor that he created, that's the bar I've always tried to reach. So that's what you have to look forward to with this movie this week is nothing. Sounds riveting. How do you feel about nothing? <laughs> um, so what are your thoughts <laughs> on, nothing. on nothing? Nothing versus nihilism. So when I hear, you know, a movie about nothing or a television show about nothing, um, and you mentioned this in, in the quote, I think about Seinfeld, because I think that was the first time that I had encountered that as a thing. That right. It was like, this is a television show about nothing. And I have to admit that I did not watch Seinfeld because it didn't, nothing about it on its face seemed like it was speaking to me in any way. So mm -hmm. I can't opine on the, you know, the, the merits of the show. I mean, it was obviously one of the most successful and uh, well-respected shows to, to air on television. I don't feel that I missed a whole lot, <laughs> but <laughs> I could be very wrong in that. But anyway, so in preparation for this conversation, I Googled, because I was like, okay, well, there, it has to be beyond Seinfeld. Uh, so I, I Googled TV shows about nothing. <laughs> and at the bottom what of... What kind the, of results yeah, did that kick back? At the bottom of the Google search where it gives you sort of searches related to TV shows about nothing, here's what you get. White TV shows 2018. <laughs> white TV shows 2017. TV shows with all white cast. White TV shows from the 90s. TV shows with no diversity, Seinfeld, <laughs> white TV shows 2019, which of these TV shows starred Seinfeld creator Larry David? So... I, I feel like there's a theme <laughs> This sort of speaks that. to why kind of I have felt like, that's probably not for me. Um, so, but I think it gets at this idea of these very sort of fundamental American ideas of when we talk about quote-unquote normal, when we talk about quote-unquote nothing, when we talk about... Universality. Universality. When we talk about just the sort of mundanity of life, mm. we're talking about whiteness and we're talking right. about privilege. More often than not, if we are thinking about television shows or films that star or center people of color, specifically black people, it is about... A pathology. It is about a trauma. It is about a crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and that, and and thankfully, we have more folks of color who are crafting narratives and directing films and television, and that is changing a bit. But 
the fact, I mean, I like this, and Google is obviously like a problematic algorithm, and we, we don't need to get into all that. <laughs> right. But I think that's a very telling thing of this idea that it's only entertaining, or we're only interested in watching white people do nothing. We're only interested in white people living Well, that's an interesting lives. question. I haven't thought about it. Are there stories of color that are about nothing? Um, I mean, I think Atlanta's probably a little... A little bit, in yeah. In that vein of, like, it's not... It's just their life. Um, and, and it's also, like, gendered, right? So... It's absolutely gendered. I think it's given more weight and resonance, even though it's about nothing, when it's men... Versus when it's women, because you could argue that something like Sex and the City is a show about nothing, but it's not because it becomes, it's a show about four women striving to find love and blowing. I mean, I think, I think Sex and the City had that Seinfeld influence. So yes, you can trace that influence from Diana through But it becomes something else because it's women, so it must be about their look, their finding love or their their relationships. Right. And And then you have a show like Girlfriends. Right. It's four women (laughs) living, loving, and working, but they don't, I don't think they get that same sort of critical lens that something like a Seinfeld got mm-hmm. because it's women. And so... Well, especially girlfriends is women of right, color. It's women of color, right. right. And so I think I think it's both something to praise and something to, to be critical of, right? I think that that is good that film and television started to make space for men to be in community with one another and to just talk. Mm-hmm. And to acknowledge that men have interiority and have emotions and nuance and that like and well, interests and all like I think right. that that's important because it gets it, it starts to try to fight back against the sort of stoic dad of television and film dad that never said anything you didn't really hear him talk you didn't know what he was interested in he just worked well and i think it also is acknowledging that men historically have been really bad at that yeah i mean this is here's robert silva writing at hbo about diner what the film does is capture the inarticulate nature of male relationships in which the best way to know somebody is by resolutely not talking about what's important Mm. and i do think i mean i don't i don't have a lot of male friends anymore that I hang out with. But when I did, I remember not talking about important stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, all conversations were channeled through this sort of... Pop culture. Trivial pop culture. Wasn't that... One of my oldest friends, I'm not sure he and I have ever talked about anything directly in Mm -hmm. our lives. Everything is channeled through that. Was that in um, High Fidelity, where it's like, is it more important what you're like versus what you like? And so it's about that. The connection was built on shared pop culture knowledge and music and television and instead of like let's talk about the fact that I'm having a really hard time at home right now and in fact I had forgotten until you just said this uh they are making a tv version of high fidelity Mm. with Zoe Kravitz in the John Cusack role so there there's your female person of color Mm -hmm. taking over that sort of Very quintessentially white male, white male yeah. role so it'll be interesting to see that's if they can do something with that yeah yeah and so i think that that's good right but and but i think it is what it has then also made room for and i think seinfeld is part of this tradition as well is it has made room for okay but so we've we've made space for men to be in conversation whether or not that conversation gets at anything deeper beyond sort of pop culture and trivia 
but it makes space for men to behave badly in community, mm. and then we're just watching four assholes sitting around a table. Which is what Seinfeld <laughs> became if it didn't start out. The Elaine was there, so there was right. A woman. It was three, yeah. right? It was three men and a woman. Mm-hmm. But that that was my problem with Seinfeld, and Seinfeld was a very funny show at mm-hmm. times. But it did become more and more about these are just three, four assholes we're mm-hmm. watching going through the world. Mm-hmm caring about nobody but themselves, just totally being selfish. And in fact, that's where the series ended up. The series finale, which was very controversial at the time, Mm -hmm. basically put them on trial and then, you know, did flashbacks of every shitty thing they'd done throughout the entire series. The final shot has them in jail, having been convicted for being assholes, sitting around having the same conversations about nothing that they'd been having the whole time. Right. So a little self-awareness, but not really. (laughs) Well, do you like that sort of stuff? I mean, you like high fidelity. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you relate to it? Mm, Or is it sort of a, you know, looking through a window at (laughs) what men are like? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that I can say I relate to it. Okay. Um, And I don't, and again, this gets at the sort of the gender dynamics. It's like, I don't even look at the relationship among the three sort of main guys and say, oh, that's how me and my friends sort of relate. So when you and your friends do go out and sit around in a diner or restaurant, Uh do you talk about nothing? I mean, aren't we all talking about nothing, really? (laughs) I I just... Um, well, you, we, you, we, you already said, you said this was a very gendered dynamic. Yeah, I do think it's gendered. And uh, so, I, uh, okay. I and, think, you said it, and you said it's a very white thing, so. I think it's, I think it's gendered in the way that they are given critical weight. I think shows about nothing that involve men are, I think are given or are largely involved men are given more critical weight than shows about nothing that involve women. And I think part of that is we consider men sitting down and talking revolutionary, mm. whereas we do not consider that with women. It's like, of course, well, women are just sitting and they're chatting and they're talking about nothing because they're women. And again, it's also like, well, women are going to be sitting and talking. They're going to be sitting and talking about finding a husband or they're going to be sitting and talking about having babies. And then you add the layer of of race onto that and also the layer of class because it's also you're then talking about people who have fucking time to just sit right. down at a diner and talk well, about Well, this is something I came across a quote of Mickey Rourke who's in this movie. Uh-huh. But Mickey Rourke came up in a very, you know, I think hard scrabble working class background. Yeah. And he said, the whole movie for me was an effort because it wasn't a film I particularly wanted to be in. I didn't get that middle class sort of humor. I never hung out or rolled with guys like what this movie was about. All this shtick and the bantering back and forth, man, I didn't get it at all. Yeah. Well, and it's also the way that it manifests in my life. All of those things are at play, right? So there's the class of the, the class dynamic of we all have jobs and we all have things going on. So one, we do not sit, see each other every day. So and sit down and just chat every day. Well, that's a sitcom. Like I don't know anybody who does <laughs> that. that. Just doesn't, I, we, In my entire life, if we get together once a month, that's a good month. Right. This whole wandering in the, and out of right. each other's apartments. It just doesn't and, happen. Yeah. And so then when we do get together, it's often like info dump. Like, okay, well, what's been going on with you? Mm-hmm. Give me the update. Blah blah blah. But we now also have the sort of added venue of technology, right? So we actually are in conversation all the fucking time. Mm -hmm. It's just happening on text message or messenger or, you know, Instagram messaging or whatever. And that is very much nothing. That is very much sharing shit from black Twitter or memes or, you know, just cracking jokes and Mm -hmm. being silly. So the connection is not a substantive exchange. 
but it is a way to just maintain connection on a day-to-day basis right. in between those spaces where we don't see each other. Right. So the way that I communicate with my friends, my close friends, just doesn't look like what you tend to see in television and film. And that includes something like girlfriends. Like girlfriends had that dynamic where they were always at Joan's house mm-hmm. and sort of just pop it and everybody was hanging out. It's like, that just doesn't. And I think my friends and I have said that out loud before. It's like, we should be, you know, like girlfriend, like some, I can have, I'll be Joan and everybody comes over and we'll just have drinks and sit. And it's like, nobody has we have time jobs. Right. <laughs> we don't, we can't really do that. So what we can do is I can text you and we can go back and forth on text all day and then I'll see you in a month. Right. So what do we decide? Is there a value in nothing? I think there's what, a- is, what is the value of nothing? It's <laughs> a very existential question. Super existential, right? Um, I do think that there is a value in nothing. I think we need to remember that everyone has nothing. Like that's not <laughs> a a domain that is solely owned by you know emotionally stunted white men. Everyone has the nothing. It you know, and it is all of interest and of value. No, we have nothing. And can all... We own nothing. You know what? If y'all want to have it... <laughs> <laughs> nothing belongs to us. Yeah, nothing is what you bring to the table. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so I think that's that's my problem, is that it has always been... It has often been a very narrow experience um, or narrow representation of a very particular experience mm-hmm. and has not allowed for the sort of full humanity of other folks. And that's every, that's like folks of color, that's trans folks, that's LGBTQ, like it's everything, Mm -hmm. you know, all, we all have those relationships where we're just shit talking. Right. And why aren't we worth a camera? Can you quit? 15 bucks would be good now. Odell, who do you pick? Sinatra or Matt? (laughs) Would you, would you just let that die, please? It's important to me. It's It's annoying me, okay? You've been asking that question to every mo that walks in here. Okay, would you just forget it? Well, maybe, maybe I have something to gain from the answer. Did you ever think of that? Maybe I have something to gain. What does it matter? Let the man speak. Let the man speak. Speak. Presley. <laughs> okay, there you go. There's the definitive answer. So not for Mathis, it's pressure. Fine. You're okay, sick. there. You got your... You, you feel better? I mean, your did opinion, you learn something there? You've gone like two steps below in my, my uh, book. Okay, let's segue into talking about this movie. So what what do you actually know beyond what I've already told you here mm-hmm. about Diner? Um. Well, at some point you showed me a clip from the film. This was a few years ago, I don't even remember why or what prompted you sharing it with me, of one of the male characters pretty harshly yelling at a woman for, like, mixing up his records. <laughs> we were probably just flipping channels and came I don't across it. I was. Um, so that's what I, I <laughs> that is That is a key scene in the movie, yes. <laughs> that's about it. Okay. Okay, so as I said, the director's Barry Levinson. Have you seen... You've seen Rain Man. Mm-hmm. He also did Good Morning Vietnam, Bugsy, Wag the Dog, Sleepers, Toys. Oh, I think you've seen Toys, the Robin Williams movie. Yes, with LL Cool J. <laughs> yes, I have seen Toys. That's a weird ass. That was movie. an unusual yeah. movie for him, and I don't think it completely worked. It was a it was a swing. It was you got to respect it. <laughs> uh, but his best movies, I think, including Diner, are set in his native Baltimore, and that would include Avalon and Tin Men. So this takes place in Baltimore, the 1950s, among guys who have just graduated from high school. The cast was almost entirely unknown, and these are 
people who all went on to have pretty substantial careers. Daniel Stern was probably the best known, having been in 1979's Breaking Away. Kevin Bacon had been on Guiding Light, playing a teenage alcoholic, and he'd had a few small roles in what turned out to be big movies like Animal House and Friday the 13th, where he got a arrow shoved mm-hmm. through his neck. But this was his first significant movie role. Paul Reiser didn't even intend to audition for this movie. He went with a friend of his who was auditioning for it, and I think someone overheard him riffing or something and pulled him in. Mickey Rourke had filmed his small role in Body Heat. I don't know if you remember him in Body Heat. Not really. He's the guy that, like, every time you pull a crime, there's 50 ways you can fuck up. Oh, yes. Yes, okay, yeah. Okay. Uh, But that was not out yet when he made this movie. Steve Gutenberg had been working a lot, but he was still a couple years away from Police Academy. So, answer to the the Simpsons question, who made Steve Gutenberg a star? Mm -hmm. It's Barry Levinson. No, it's the... The Stonecutters. The (laughs) Stonecutters. Alan Barkin had done a couple of soaps, some small uncredited roles in movies, but once she read for Barry Levinson, he she was the only person he wanted for this. And the studio did not like her, didn't want her, said she wasn't pretty enough. Ellen uh, Barkin wasn't pretty? Ellen Barkin wasn't, Who yes. Who are these people? I know. Last time it was Meryl Streep wasn't pretty. What yeah. the hell? All right. <laughs> uh, Levinson insisted, and the cinematographer, Peter Sova, has said that he took it upon himself to make her look good and to make every other woman who read for the bird look bad to sabotage it in Ellen Barkin's favor. And she is really the only woman in this movie. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, we talked about this movie being about nothing. I think it actually is about something. We'll see what you think. I think part of what it's about is women, even though there are no women in it. I think it's about how men do not understand women, do not know how to talk about women, do not know how to relate to women. I think that to me, is what this movie is about. Hmm. The studio did not understand this movie. It was a $5 million movie. Producer Mark Johnson has said that MGM had a lot of higher-profile movies at the time, and they sort of left them alone to do this the way they wanted to. And then when they saw it, uh, Levinson says, after we made it, the studio looked at it and had a heart attack. It wasn't a coming-of-age movie like they thought it was. It wasn't Porky's, which is what they'd really (laughs) hoped it would be. Yeah, they didn't get it at all. He likes to tell the story that they sat him down and told him he needed to learn about editing and pointed to a scene in the movie where the guys are just sitting in a diner arguing over who's going to eat a sandwich. And he says the studio told him, you know, you need you need to cut that out and, you know, get on with the story. And he was like, that That is is the story. (laughs) There were early test screenings in Baltimore that were not encouraging. (laughs) The Baltimore Sun hated the movie and hated the guys in it. There was a chance, in fact, it was not going to be released at all. The studio had no interest in releasing this movie. But fortunately, producer Mark Johnson's mother was friends with Pauline Kael. So Johnson snuck a print out of the studio, flew it to New York, and showed it to her. Pauline Kael then called up MGM, supposedly, and told them she was about to give it a rave review in The New Yorker, so they'd look pretty stupid if they didn't (laughs) release it. Kale called it a wonderful movie and said Diner is a great period piece, a look at middle-class relations between the sexes just before the sexual revolution. It never did really get released widely nationwide, although it was a critical hit everywhere it was released. Made for $5 million, it ended up making about $15 million. It was nominated for Best Screenplay, which it lost. But uh, this is another... I mean, I certainly didn't see this in theaters. I definitely saw it on tape. Mm. Um, And I think that's where its reputation really started to grow. All right. Well, so after all that, do you think there's any chance you're actually going to like this movie? Um, you know, I have liked... Like, I like High Fidelity. I've liked... I've actually liked 
a lot of things that have absolutely nothing to do with my life and to and and that feature people that I have no <laughs> connect, no, connection, no connection to, no sort of kinship. So sure, I, I think you might like it if you can get past the emotionally stunted. That's a hard one. That's a hard one. Of it, which is the whole point. Yeah. But. Right, but the point is, I'm now seeing this film at a point in time where that has been a character for decades, and I'm, I'm, I've lost you're, my patience. You're over it. I've lost my patience with that, so. There was, I was remembering when we watched, I think it, it was Grease we watched. Um, and there's a scene in there where John Travolta's hitting on Olivia Newton-John in the car and, like, does the... The reach over the... The reach over the, and put his arm around her thing. And you you were going on about how men just don't try that. Like, that's yeah, just cause it's, sad. and It doesn't work. Again, yeah. we are not... I don't, okay, we're not going to get into this. This whole, like, we don't understand women thing. Like, what is... What? what? We're human beings. What is your problem? The point is, when you made that comment, I said, there's a movie called Diner. We're going to watch one of these days where that's probably going to come up again. So Awesome. You have that to look forward to. Just... You could just be normal. I just, I'm just, PSA, men, you talk and act your way out of more pussy than I could even, like, Jesus, if you could just be normal, your odds would increase greatly. I don't, I really don't understand how the human race has continued because. Because half of it is just. Half of it is just. And the fact that you even get to have sex with someone is something I'm just, you lucked up, pal, because you work hard to fuck up. And on that note, let's go watch <laughs> Diner. There's a little place where people gather to enjoy the banquet of life. I get a date with Carol Heathrow. She is death. It's the diner. And what they really want most isn't on the menu. Come on. And he's given Elise a football quiz. If she fails, the marriage is off. If she passes, it's two more days to the thing. Virgin. You're a virgin, aren't you? Technically. Come on. You miserable creature. It's a slice of life. Did you turn it to such a thing? With a touch of spice. Better put that sheep down. And a little love. Who's admiring your horse? A few beers. A few tears. A few great years. You happy with your marriage or what? Beth is terrific and everything, but... Always got the diner. Yeah, we always got the diner. They were sharing good times that soon became old times. Uh, my prayer. Flip side, heaven on earth, recorded by the Platters for Mercury Records, color of the label maroon. Nothing could be finer than eating at the diner. These are like a building of feet. Where friends show up. But mostly, show off. I'll hit you so hard, I'll kill your whole family. You guys really are sick, you know that? It's because you got no sense of humor. It's a place to stop before moving on. Diner. It's open all day and cooking all night. During the break, Nikia and I watched Diner. Nikia, you and I ended up 
unreasonably taking a week off over the holidays, but this was supposed to be our Christmas to New Year's transition movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, The film opens on Christmas night. It ends with Eddie's wedding on New Year's Eve, so the entire film takes place during the holiday taint. Really? (laughs) Sure, why not? You know why not. (laughs) What, what, What did you make of this one? I didn't love it. No. No. That's hard to fathom. I respect it for, (laughs) you know, what it birthed, apparently, in terms of this being a thing, nothing being a thing. (laughs) Nothing. But I did not actually enjoy the film really at all. So you respect it for giving us nothing. Yes. (laughs) But it gave you... But there was nothing I liked about it. Okay, fair enough. By the way, it did birth a couple of other things. There was a 1983 TV pilot Mm -hmm. in which Paul Reiser was the only person to reprise his role. Michael Madsen played Boogie. And your good friend, James Spader, played Fenwick, the Kevin Bacon role. I can see that, sure. (laughs) Do you think you would have been more into that if it was... No. Spader? No. I think everyone did a good job. I just, (laughs) I um, have no need to see that film again. Okay. Uh, There is also, and I'm not sure if it's opened or if it's opening, a Broadway musical. Sure, why not? Version with music by Sheryl Crow. Why am I sure? When you just play, like I, a jukebox I, music? Do I know? And then you just play all the songs. I guess you'd have to get the right song sure. music, though. But okay. So we can go see that. Yeah, maybe. no, I don't. That would be one way to make it worse for me. <laughs> okay, there's. I don't know that there's really any way to talk about the plot with this movie. There is no plot. Because that's right. Mm-hmm. Let's talk generally about the nothing. Okay. How did the nothing work for you? This is a very existential conversation. <laughs> um, how did the nothing work how for me? How did you experience nothing? I was not able to connect with any of the nothing, and most of the nothing I found annoying, <laughs> which I knew going in when we when we had right. our sort of pre-conversation, I admitted. I do try to kind of warn you yes. sort of what to expect and from I these things. And I knew that my patience for the stunted man, particularly the stunted white man, was like limited <laughs> to zero. So part of it is I need to admit that I'm just not in the place where I would enjoy this. It would be very unlikely for me to enjoy this film anyway. Um, so that is a bias that I am admitting to. And it pretty much confirmed mm-hmm. my <laughs> notions going in. I had zero patience for any of these characters. And I didn't even find them particularly interesting. Kevin Bacon's character was slightly interesting. See, I would I would have thought that would be the one you'd have the least patience but for. The whole like trust fund kid that's fucking up right. is like tired. So yes, there was a limit to it, but at least there was like some energy there. There mm-hmm. was this underlying energy there. And I think that's Okay, more- let's let's talk about the individual well we'll talk about the individual characters later. We'll kind of go through them. But the diner scene you didn't enjoy because if you don't enjoy that, I think then this movie's a slog. I mean, I, I, sure, I get it, and I see, and again, it's, it is a model that has been replicated in many films and television moving forward. Right. So I, and it actually was kind of revolutionary. Yeah, yeah. Apart from Robert Altman, not a lot of people were doing the sort of overlapping dialogue. Mm-hmm. So even just from a technical standpoint, having every character mic'd at the same time and having their voices overlapping like that, and mm-hmm. you almost have to decide which conversation you're listening to, yeah. that kind of thing was very unusual. Yeah. I think of all of them, I liked the dynamic in the diner between, 
I don't know. I'm not going to remember their names. <laughs> Paul Reiser and Gutenberg. Yes, and they're Modell sort of back and forth of just and like, just Eddie. ask for the thing that you want to ask for. Where's that roast beef? Don't ask me this anymore, Modell. Yes. You want to finish that? Yeah, I'm going to finish it. I paid for it. I'm not going to give it to you. If you're not going to finish it, I would eat it. But if you're going to eat it, you're going to... What do you want? Say the words. No, go ahead. You're going to eat it. You eat it. That's all right. Say the words. I want the roast beef sandwich. Say the words and I'll give you a piece. Would you guys cut this out? I mean, every time. Anything. Well, if he doesn't talk, he just... Go, he, well, you know what he means, right? Yeah, I know what he means, but he beats around the bush. He beats around the bush. If he'd say the words, I'd give him a piece. If I wanted it, would I, wouldn't I ask you? No, then I ask. You know you, you just want... let it go? You know he wants You're it. annoying. I'm annoying. I'm annoying. I'm trying to eat a meal by myself. If you want to give him the sandwich, give him the sandwich. If you don't want to give him the sandwich, don't. I don't want to give him the... If well, then just eat the sandwich. Then don't. Up. Well, look at his eyes. I ask one simple question. You get. You know what your problem is? You don't chew your food. That's why you get so irritable. It, it lumps you up like roast beef in your heart. It just stays there. Paul Reiser is, and Paul Reiser, that is, we can get rid of his character right now because he has no story of no, any kind. No, 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 That's his only role yeah. is to sit there and be that guy. Yeah. But he's very good he's at very it. He's very good at it. And that's, I did enjoy their sort of interaction. And they, the guys, there have been a couple of, you know, interviews and oral histories and there's a video on YouTube you can watch about the making of this. And they all talk about how that was, you know, the, you get competitive because mm-hmm. everybody's sort of riffing and improving and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that nobody could keep up with Paul Reiser. Yeah. And like Kevin Bacon says, you know, I was bad at it. I was not the guy that could do that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he's he's sort of amazing. Yeah. So here's what I've actually found interesting about the film. And I don't know that I've ever felt this way about other places that are about other films and television that are about nothing, quote unquote. I found myself focused on the workers. Mm-hmm. So, the and they were like in, sitting in those diners apparently until like four o'clock in the morning. And I'm focused on the waitress and I'm focusing on the guy that I, I assume owns the diner and all the work that's happening around them uh-huh. while they're just sitting in this booth bullshitting. And then there's a scene where they are walking to the train station to pick up somebody's brother. I don't know. I don't remember their names. <laughs> But there's like a soldier sleeping on a bench Mm -hmm. in that scene. And then when they go back to Gutenberg's parents' house, they have a black maid who's like vacuuming in the background. So I found myself looking at... But they never speak to, like she's just there. She's just there. So I found myself, instead of focusing on whatever little nonsense they were talking about, looking at the workers in the background, that all the labor that was happening (laughs) around them in the background while they said... That they didn't notice or appreciate. Right, and they just were doing nothing. And you assume those people hate them. and I know, but it's just like, and then I'm more like, I'm interested to see what that waitress's life is like. Like, she has to deal with these assholes who are apparently in here every day until 4 a.m. ordering fucking fries. So she's not getting <laughs> a whole gravy. lot of money out of this table. <laughs> and more, so it's, I just, yeah, so I found it, I found myself looking at the people in the background more mm-hmm. than I was paying attention to the lead guys. I, I guess that makes sense because you were not going to relate to these guys. No. So you relate to being the person who is watching these guys yeah. move through the world. I was interested in everyone else but these guys. I was interested in Ellen Barkin's character. Well, yes. I was interested in the woman who worked at the, the news station that didn't mm-hmm. want to marry one of the assholes yep. and was just like, no, we're not doing this. You don't know the difference between having a female friend and being in love and we're right. not doing this. She seemed like she was really interested. Well, they're the only adults in the movie. Right. But they, they're even the Which, few- again, I think is 
what the movie is about. Yeah, no, it is. But so, but but then that sets it up. So like, yes, the movie is a commentary on that. But me watching it from the place where I am in this moment, I'm not interested in that commentary. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in well, what's going on in Ellen Barkin's life, mm-hmm. and what's going on in that woman's life who's working in the news station, and so she's pregnant and she's about to have this baby, but she has no interest in being with this douchebag. And <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I was, I just it it created a starkness. That made me less patient with the main characters. Mm-hmm. What about the basic sort of world building? Because I do think this feels like a real time and place. I think it all sure. feels very authentic. Yeah. Um, and I do think that sort of background stuff that you talk about mm-hmm. is, is a big part of yes, that. Yes, I agree. Yes. You do get the sense that there's a real world operating that, again, these guys are just sort of removed from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a line, it's when they're out on the, like, horse branch and they meet the girl. And I think it's Fenwick who says, You ever get the feeling there's something going on we don't know about? And that's kind of the key takeaway from this movie. Mm -hmm. Okay. Barry Levinson said that to him what this movie was about, and he said he 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 based most of these guys on real guys. Mm -hmm. And this is, I mean, one of the key scenes, and it's, you wouldn't even think about it, is when Billy gets back, he goes up to Eddie's bedroom and Eddie is getting dressed. Yeah. The Steve Gutenberg character. Mm -hmm. And this is what Levinson said. He said, my cousin Eddie loved fried bologna sandwiches, slept until 2.30 in the afternoon, and when he got out of bed, he would just slip on his pants and pull on last night's shirt, which he'd never even bothered to unbutton. His tie was still knotted from the night before, and he would slip that on too. He always wore a shirt and tie because he felt that was the uniform of adulthood. He looked like a dignified young man, but people didn't realize that the clothes had been picked up right off the floor. And this is Roger Ebert in his review said, they are growing up painfully and awkwardly at an age when they are supposed to have already grown up. Mm-hmm. Adolescence lasts longer for some people than society quite imagines. And that's what it is. These guys are pretending to be adults. Yeah. And they're nowhere near being adults. No, yeah. I mean, they are definitely wearing the uniform, but shirking all of the responsibility that comes along with it, including dating women who are like 12 or 11, whatever that <laughs> Not that was. young, but yeah, high school. And fucking off at school, fucking off at their jobs, and just so, and and betting on really just gross and mm-hmm. immature pranks and things. So like, yeah, they have no interest in actually and, and clinging desperately to each other Yeah, to the point where it's a little bit pathetic and you just want to sort of say, would you guys just make out already and leave the rest of everybody else alone? Like, just be together. And get a house and See, just... It's weird how you always end up with that. <laughs> because it's like, no. it seems that that's what you want. Kanicki so. and what's his name from Greece. You yes, said that just about go be too. together. Have a wonderful life and don't poison the people around you. <laughs> All right, let's 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 kind of talk about these guys one by one. Which, which one would you like to talk about first? None of them. <laughs> If you're doing Mary Fuck Kill with this group of guys, nope. what's your who's your, who, kill who's all? Your... <laughs> it's not an option. Kill all of them. Come on. Kill all. Of... Number one, none of them are good in bed. None of them. <laughs> not even Boogie. Which one is that? Mickey Rourke. The one who put his dick in a popcorn box. <laughs> really? You think he's really hot in the sheets? Do you? <laughs> he comes in five seconds. No. <laughs> Mary, no. <laughs> so, kill is the only option we have left. That's that's it. Kill. <laughs> okay, okay. Let's okay. So let's start with Mickey Rourke's character, Boogie, sure. who in some ways seems like more of a grown up than the other guys. Mm, he looks older. He looks older. He He's pretends he plays a little more self possessed and sure. confident. And... It's a, a facade, but sure. <laughs> Okay. They all think he's cool. Exactly. They all because treat there's him always like that he's, one kid mm-hmm. in the group that everybody thinks is cool when he's not. 
at all. <laughs> he has fifty-six dollars to his name. He's going to law school. Right, but he's not doing well, obviously. <laughs> and he's only going so he can tell women that he's going to law school because that's hot. No. So you you didn't, you didn't think much of of Boogie? I think he's wearing eyeliner. Um, <laughs> that this is something else they've talked about because apparently Mickey Rourke did his own wardrobe and makeup. Of course, Mickey Rourke did his own wardrobe and makeup. <laughs> they said sometimes he would come out of the trailer and they'd be like, "Jesus, like what are you?" Pretty sure he had eyeliner on yeah. the Oh yeah, no, he totally did. Yeah, I mean, Boogie is Boogie's a fuck up. He's a con artist. <laughs> he is arguably, you know, a perpetrator of sexual assault, and <laughs> he is I. He's the, the, like, fake, deep, fake adult dude that's, like, not... You remember that, um, the older character in, um, that movie you like with Phoebe Cates? Fast Times at Richmond High? Yes. The one that fucks, um, what's her name? <laughs> the, the ticket scalper guy you're like talking terrible. about? Yes. Yeah. That's him. <laughs> oh. Like, everybody thinks he's cool. He's not cool. He's actually very sad, and he's gonna live a very sad life. That's how I feel about Boogie. <laughs> Where the fuck did he get the horse from? Did he just steal one of her horses? <laughs> yeah, I, I have no idea. That's, yeah. <laughs> and all of a sudden he just knows how to ride a horse? I just, no. I don't, I didn't care for him at all. He is the only person in the movie, I think, that we actually see have a real conversation with women. After he tries to con that woman <laughs> into pretending to be... I was, I was thinking more about, well, I guess, yeah, in both, in both yes. circumstances. Yeah. Beth and Carol Heathrow. Mm-hmm. No. Any man that can, with a straight face, say, I accidentally popped my dick in a popcorn box. I don't know. It's just that the pain was killing me, you know. It was, it was, it was to stop the pain, it was digging in the side of my leg. So what I did was, you know, I opened my fly to loosen everything up, just to give it a little air. And, uh, you know, it worked. Everything settled down. And then I got, you know, caught back up in the picture. And then... Uh, you know, that's when Sandra got her leg caught on the, on the bush and she lifted up her dress. You know, it just popped right up and it went through the bottom of the popcorn box. And the force of it just, just opened up the flap. It just pushed the flap open? It's Ripley's, I'm telling you. It just pushed the flap right open and I couldn't move the box. You know, you would have seen it. That's true. Totally plausible. Just because it was so... Totally could happen. My dick was so hard and it was just, you don't understand the pain, (laughs) but just... You're a trash-ass human being. This is the scene I was talking about before. Yes. Trash. (laughs) So, no. I did not enjoy it. She she fell for it, though. Which is... uh, The women in this movie... (laughs) Is this all that's there in Baltimore in the 50s? Is this... These are the only gentlemen you have to pick from? No. There's better. She was stunning. There's better. <laughs> you can do better than... You can do better than somebody who tricks you into touching their dick, dick in, a box. in a popcorn box. That's fucking assault. You're disgusting. Uh, he's got a, he's got a little gambling problem, too. More than a little. Very serious gambling problem, and he has no money. It's a bad combination. And so he makes bets on his dick in order to make money <laughs> to pay off his gambling debts. And then bets that require sleeping with his friend's wife, wife while she's pretending to be the girl who mm-hmm. touches his dick in a But he gets a, box. you know, crisis conscience He does. He gets a little, a little moment of redemption there. But it's... Where he calls it off at the last minute. a little too late. Because that was a horribly <laughs> shitty thing to do. It doesn't make you a good person that you realize at the very last minute that it was a shitty thing to do. Okay, which one of these fine, upstanding young gentlemen would you like to talk about next? No, talk about Fenwick? Because I don't care. And then you're going to have to tell me who that person is. Which one is that? Kevin Bacon. Okay. The drunk. Um, yeah. He's obviously... You can't call him a drunk just because he's drunk in every scene film. in the movie, including at then 9 o'clock make, in the morning. Then what makes and... a drunk? Please to tell me what, what makes a drunk. Yeah, Fenwick is... 
We we first meet Fenwick. He's in the punching basement of the high school, punching out just windows because it's a smile. He says everything's just a smile. And this is after he sold his date for five dollars. <laughs> his eleventh grade. His eleventh grade date. And I, I, I keep feeling like she's twelve, but okay. <laughs> and here's uh, just side note here. Here's one of the things. Like again, Mickey Rourke acts like he's a better person throughout this movie, and he's not. No, he's probably worse than any because they they're talking about the eleventh grader, and he seems to be chastising him for dating. An eleventh grader, but he knows her boobs, are and then he knows that her boobs are fake by personal yeah. knowledge. He says, no, "Yeah, yeah. No. Which, again, what I'm saying, he's not the cool one. He's disgusting." <laughs> yes, so Kevin Bacon is dealing with some demons. Apparently, uh, he is the poor. He's a poor rich kid. He's a poor rich kid who's just had such a hard time. He's got a trust fund, but it's not off of very his big. A dollar a month trust fund in his little red convertible that he crashes <laughs> because it's a joke. Um, yeah, so he's either going to be dead or working in somebody's law firm at some point one of the other <laughs> which which would you bet on uh, law firm doing cocaine that sounds about right yeah yeah so james spader was good casting for yep. this because james spader definitely would have played this character yes. <laughs> so yeah i mean and i didn't enjoy him but like i said he was the only he does have a weird has, manic energy to him in this kineticism to him and i think that part of that is like he feels legitimately dangerous yeah but like, it, part of it is just very it's a kevin bacon thing like kevin bacon always has that like smirk on his face mm-hmm. like he's always sort of in on the joke so i think part of that is just who kevin bacon is but yeah i mean he was the only one that was like remotely interesting but not interesting for long because again that's just a very of course you're a rich kid <laughs> it, who just wants to drink and fuck off he gets old fast you can do that and you'll be fine so, yeah. The manger scene is why we almost did this as a Christmas adjacent movie Where last he month. Gets drunk and <laughs> lays down with, in his boxers in the manger and then fights the. <laughs> fights the three wise men. Statues of the three wise men. Yeah. <laughs> uh, three more wise men. They've heard of the miracle. Let's go, man. You must have traveled far. Come. Come, rest your weary feet. Come on, Fen. Get out of there. Someone's going to spot you. The police are going to be here. Come on, Fen. Put your pants on. This. This is a big smile. Yeah. Yeah, come on. Come on. Come on. Oh. Let's go. No! 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 Come on. No! Hey, Eddie, get his arms. Get him down. Hey, Billy. Billy, Billy, grab him. It's a proud moment for his family, I'm sure. <laughs> Future senator. <laughs> but everyone's very protective of him. They all, you know, look out for him and take care of him and because go get him out of the manger. They know that he's going to die. He's going to kill himself or somebody's going to kill him. That's one of those people that you got to keep an eye on because they're a hair away from total disaster. <laughs> Okay, and then we have, this to me is the weak portion of the movie, is Billy, which is the Tim Daly character. Which one is that? That's (laughs) (laughs) the one with the pregnant girlfriend. Yeah, that's a weird thing. It feels like another movie, that whole... Yeah, so he... And maybe that's the point, maybe he's like the only one who's... Because he's the one who got out, he went to college, yeah. and, he, and so he kind of moves in a sort of different world than the rest of them. He does, but there is an energy to him that's, like, a little bit weird. 
Because when he first came into the film, I had that read too of like, okay, this is the guy that sort of quote unquote grew up. Like he right. went to school and he's trying to be responsible. In traditional structure, like he would be the audience surrogate yes. character, right? Who's he's looking the, at everything and being like, this is ludicrous. Right. You guys need to grow up. Um, but he's obviously emotionally immature mm-hmm. as well. It has sort of swung the other way where he can't tell female friendship from love. Now, on the plus side, he has a female friend, which is more than sure. anybody else in this movie does. But he doesn't understand that you can just have a female friend. Right. Like, she doesn't have to then become a lover. Right. She can just be a female friend. Um, so there's either you can't, um, you don't have female friends and you only see them as sexual objects or, you know, you can't, they can't stay friends. They must become mm-hmm. partner. Um, this is Catherine Dowling's mm-hmm. Barbara. who. Yeah. As we said, like, she is one of the only adult people of mm-hmm. this age in the movie. Mm-hmm. She's got a job. She cares about She works at this television station. She's ambitious. Mm-hmm. She's, like, you You cannot imagine her hanging out with any of the other characters in this movie. No. Well, especially him, because he seems, like, a little too punch-happy. And that was, a, that was like, the weird energy. <laughs> behind. I was like, why is he so quick to yeah, violence? He's, he's yeah, little... he's... Mm, so, yeah. He has... He's apparently he got beat up by a baseball team and like twenty years ago, and he's carrying it around and (laughs) And he's walking around punching punching them as he finds them. It's just really, dude. (laughs) Well, it was uh, the eleventh grade. No, 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 it was the tenth grade. That's right. Billy was playing ball against one of the high school fraternities. (laughs) I think they were alt. So uh, Billy comes sliding to second base to break up the double play, and uh, the second baseman thought that Billy was trying to hurt him. So he jumped on Billy. So Billy punched the guy. And then the whole old team jumped on Billy. They beat the crap out of him. And he's been waiting for them after all these years. Well, he swore he'd get them. It was forever ago, <laughs> So Broxton makes it eight. Or seven. seven. No, no, it's eight. That's right. There's one guy left. So what, are you waiting? what is his name? Billy? Billy. And Goonberg. Ed- Eddie. Are sitting in a sad strip club. <laughs> it is. It is a pretty sad strip Something. club. And Billy is not liking the tempo of the music because he is having a little manic moment <laughs> and has this really sort of like he has such a weird, dangerous energy to him. And it's it's such an odd character. Um, but he goes up to the piano and basically just takes over from the club musicians and is just allowed to do this uh, and totally interrupts this woman up there trying to dance and do her fucking job. So, yeah, it was, again, it's just this sort of moment of, like, there were people doing their jobs and they just sort of inserted and interrupted. (laughs) That was the scene where I actually felt what you were talking about, about, like, the background characters are more interesting. Yeah. Like, I started thinking about, because the, the band was, like, two guys mm-hmm. who were just sitting there playing, you know, and obviously they've been doing this a long time, yeah. and they're playing mu- music for sad strippers. Yes. <laughs> like, those guys were have more interesting stories to tell mm-hmm. than this kid who's jumping up on stage, taking over. Yeah. Yeah. And they actually go out with a stripper for coffee And afterwards. she says it's the best night she's had, so, <laughs> I mean, if she had a good time, that's great. Uh, but, yeah. Yeah. I just saw two dudes fucking up somebody else's work. (laughs) That scene is also so good because they, like, they're in that strip club. They're not watching No, they're being loud and obnoxious. They're they're talking about, it's such a weird parody of adulthood because they're sitting there, there's a stripper on stage. They're not paying any attention to her. They're talking about when they were in high school. The first time they felt someone up. and the Right, Mm -hmm. when they couldn't get girls, Mm -hmm. you know? It's like, that's way more fun than actually looking at the woman in front of them taking her clothes off. Yes. You remember Cop in the Field? Mm -hmm. I forget. Boogie was the first. Said it was great. 
when I took out Ruth Ray, figured I had to do it. Ruth Ray, it's great, right? Sat on the all couch of her club cellar for hours, trying to figure out a way to put my arm around. Finally, I learned the move. You know the move? You want to put my arm around his shoulder? Then, oh man, was I young. Then came the big task of getting my hand down toward the breast. By the time I, you know, I got the nerve to move down, I realized my arm was asleep. No. Yeah. Yeah. So I figured out, you know, if there wasn't time enough to take it away, get the feeling again, start over. I had to be in by 11. Time was running out. <laughs> the breast was moved toward with my arm asleep. <laughs> my first cop and feel was like this. <laughs> that doesn't count. That doesn't even count. Then I see the guys. Like, so you were there. I saw the guys say, uh, Did you cop a feel? I said, yeah. The guys said, how was it? I said, great. Now, wait a second. You mean to tell me that you never copped a feel from Ruth Wright? No. Lied <laughs> to me? I'd have you. Believe because women are always better in the ideal or the abstract than they are in reality. Right. Which I think brings us naturally to Shreve, who is the Daniel Stern character, the only one who's married. Oh, okay, yeah. Let's talk about Shreve. What the fuck is there to talk about? <laughs> He's a dick. He does not deserve Ellen Barkin. <laughs> no, no, no one deserves Ellen Barkin. Her, I would have broken every single fucking record in that house. <laughs> Put it back together, you piece of shit. How dare you? Be indignant about your damn records when you will go on to get your ass kicked by an eight-year-old. Fuck you. No. When your ass kicked by an eight-year-old? He's from Home Alone. He gets his ass kicked by an eight-year-old oh, in Home Alone. I forgot he was in Home Alone. <laughs> God, that's he and Joe Pesci, isn't it? Yes, they? it is. So who the hell do you think you are? Yeah, like these are two people that married because that was the next thing to do. It wasn't because they actually wanted to be married. Mm-hmm. Um I think that or they, have anything in common. Nothing to talk about. No interest in learning anything about each other. No interest in really sharing anything in in in, in like an authentic exchange. He sort of expects her to want to know all his shit or to know all his shit. Right. He expects her to value him for the things his friends value right. him for, mm-hmm. which is that he knows what's Besides on the flip side of the, the record. Albums. <laughs> Knows what color the record labels are. Why is that important? And that's what that that's what that big fight is about. And it's a really good scene. You have to admit yes. that's a really it's good d- scene. It's well done. Yes. I found my James Brown record filed under the J's instead of the B's. I don't know who taught you to alphabetize, but to top it off, he's in the rock and roll section instead of the R and B section. How can you do that? It's too complicated, Shrevi. See, every time I pull out a record, there's this whole procedure I have to go through. I just want to hear the music, that's all. Is it too complicated to just keep my records in the category, okay? Just put the rock and roll in with the rock and roll. Put the R&B in with the R&B. I mean, you're not going to put Charlie Parker in with the rock and roll, would you? Would you? I don't know. Who is Charlie Parker? Jazz! Jazz! He's, he was the greatest jazz saxophone player that ever lived! What are you getting so crazy about? It's just music. It's not that big a deal. It it is. Don't you understand? This this is important to me. Shrevy, why do you yell at me? No. I never hear you yell at any of your friends. Look, pick a record, okay? What? Just pick any record. Any record. Okay. What's what's the hit side? 
Good golly, Miss Molly. Okay. Now ask me what's on the flip side. Why? Just, just ask me what's on the flip side, okay? What is on the flip side? Hey, 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 hey. 1958 Specialty Records. See, you don't ask me things like that, do you? No, you never ask me what's on the flip side. No, because I don't give a shit. Shrevy, who cares about what's on the flip side of a record? I do! Every one of my records means something. The label, the producer, the year it was made. Who was copying whose styles? Who was expanding on that? Don't you understand? When I listen to my records, they take me back to certain points in my life, okay? Just don't touch my records, ever. The first time that I met you, Modell Sisters high school graduation party, right? 1955. And Ain't That a Shame was playing when I walked in the door. And she's she's amazing in it. Yes, yeah, she is. But, and your heart breaks for her. But again, it's like, you should go marry your friends then. Because... <laughs> but he actually kind of, he puts a nice turn on it right at the end as he's going out the door. Oh, he remembers the song they were playing when they first said, fuck you. <laughs> no, that didn't work. No, because no. you were just a dick. You don't get to be a dick and then be like, oh, but I remember the song that was playing when we first met. But you don't remember to treat her how, like a human being? That part, we're missing that? That she should be your friend and your partner? Shreve. <laughs> Do you remember the song that was playing when you made your wife cry? <laughs> you piece of shit. We talked before about how nobody ever... People in this movie don't really talk about any of the important things. Mm -hmm. He has that one conversation. I forget who it's with. It must be Steve Gutenberg, right? Talking... Yeah, because Steve Gutenberg's asking him what it's like being married. Mm -hmm. Shreve, you happy with your marriage or what? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You don't know? What? How could you not... You don't know. How could you not know? I don't know. Beth is terrific and everything, but... Jesus, I don't know. I'll tell you a big part of the problem, though, when you get married. Well, you know, when you're dating, everything is talking about sex, right? Where can we do it? You know, why can't we do it? Are your parents gonna be out so, so we can do it, you know? Trying to get a weekend just so that we can do it. So you can do it. Everything is just always talking about getting sex. And then planning the wedding. All the details. Details. Shit. But then, when you get married, it's crazy. I don't know. I mean, you can get it whenever you want it. You wake up in the morning and she's there. And you come home from work and she's there. And so all that sex planning talk is over with. And so is the wedding planning talk, because you, you're already married. Right. So, you know, I can come down here, we can bullshit the whole night away, but I cannot hold a five-minute conversation with Beth. I mean, it's not her fault, I'm not blaming her, she's great, it's... Oh, of course not. It's just we got nothing to talk about. But it's good, it's good. It's good. It's nice, right? It's nice. Yeah, it's nice. Right. It's really a dark yeah. scene. But it's gonna be great. And, right. totally do it. and then he says, no, but it's great. And but Steve, he's only saying it because he's like, And Gutenberg's like, but it's great, right? It's good. You can't leave me hanging. So he's basically like, I just need somebody else to get married so that you will be in this boat with me. It's not, I want you to get married because I think it's a great institution. It's, I don't want to be the only man that's married in this group. <laughs> 
Okay, well, let's talk about Bath, because she is the heart of this movie. Mm-hmm. That scene where the fight at the record player, she, she's fantastic throughout yeah. this entire movie. Yeah. Uh, but her breakdown after that, mm-hmm. she's so good. Yeah. Is it? It's Boogie that comes to the door, right? Yeah. Mickey Rourke. Oh, what's wrong? Yeah, and so she basically sort of crumbles in his arms and is very sort of self loathing in that moment and just like what i did i did something wrong and i don't know what i did but i did something wrong um and it really she's heartbreaking and he takes full advantage of that moment mm-hmm. like the gross person that he is and then they have a well nice, that's the double edge of that too because yeah. he is being nice to her and he is telling her what she needs to hear but he's also totally manipulating it's predatory her and, yeah. and he, no because it's like he's being nice because he only knows how to be nice if it's to an end and the end is to manipulate her into sleeping with him Eventually. Because she goes to the salon that he works at the next day or whatever day it is. And he basically just puts the moves on her Mm. without any pause. And he's just like, you're, you know, she's having... Because she's this raw emotional nerve. Like, really questioning herself. Like, am I still pretty? Bug, when we were dating, did you care for me? Sure I did. No, I don't mean just because you could do stuff to me, but, but because you really cared. Of course, Beth. I mean, there was plenty of girls around for a quick pop. That's what I wanted. But I gotta tell you, uh, you were good. Oh, was? Mm-hmm. Believe me. <laughs> How would I rate? You would rate way up there. I mean, because I never told you this, but this, uh... I often think of the nights that we spent together. I mean, that was a long time ago. You know, I don't have any sense of myself anymore. It's, I don't know what I am. I don't know if I'm pretty or... Oh. I just, I have no sense of me anymore. And that, I mean, looking at the, just the the sexual relations and the gender relations here, it's like, it's the other side of who the men are is that the women were, you know, it was all about their desirability mm-hmm. as sexual objects mm-hmm. to land a husband. And then once they land the husband, it's like, I don't know who I am anymore. Yeah. Am I still pretty? That's all she wants to know. Am I still hot? How did I rank in bed? Mm-hmm. Like that's yeah. her entire identity. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's heartbreaking. And she's, you know, she's the only wife in the group. She's the only one that's ever out with them. She's but always... not really, because they're no. always leaving her out of the conversation. Right. And she's she's always asking behind. questions. They don't even listen to yeah. her, answer her questions. She's always walking a couple of paces behind yeah. them. So your advice to her would be... Divorce. <laughs> Immediately. It's not even a question. <laughs> I don't see any redeeming quality in Shrevey. <laughs> Uh, and his piece of shit friends. So. so do you blame her for planning to sleep with Boogie? No, I mean, you know, she was in a, a raw place and she needed validation and she has basically been programmed to feel that her only validation is through her body and the sort of and her sexuality. So I can see how she got there. And again, like I don't have any I, I don't. I wouldn't feel bad for Shrevi if she cheated on. I just because I don't give a shit about Shrevi. So, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but you know, sure. Morally, she probably should have gone there. But whatever. It's Shrevi. <laughs> Fuck him.
I would hope that she would just cheat with someone better than Popcorn Dick because it's just... <laughs> we, we'd have to introduce a new character then because there really exactly. is Bagel. She can go sleep with Bagel. He Which seems to be the, only, the guy in the bar that... I mean, the guy in the diner that pays off sure, Boogie's dad. He seems to be the only nice yeah. guy with a job in the movie. Sure, why not? <laughs> sleep with the kid who like only quotes the one movie through the whole film. <laughs> Sweet smell of success. Any... Which is on our list, by the way. We're going to be watching <laughs> that movie. Else. The dialogue in that movie is worth quoting endlessly. <laughs> How you doing, Miss? JJ, it's one thing to wear your dog collar, but when it turns into a noose, I'd rather have my freedom. A man in jail is always for freedom. Except, if you'll excuse me, JJ, I'm not in jail. You're blind, Mr. Magoo. This is the crossroads for me. I won't get Kello. Not for a lifetime past at the polo grounds. Not if you serve me Cleopatra on a plate. And that is why you put your hands on JJ, please. Susie tried to show us. Smith's favorite movie. Sweet smell success. Memorize the whole movie. He's younger guys, I tell you. Crazier than we were. But that is such a funny character. <laughs> All right, who haven't we talked? Oh, we haven't talked about Gutenberg. Fuck him. <laughs> The most childlike of all but of these. All of these dudes are like childs. you are banking a lot on the fact that women want to be with you because you are going to test your fiance on football trivia before you commit to marrying her. Who do you think you have? You looked at yourself. Do you see your life? Are you asking your mama to make you a bologna sandwich? Do you think you're a catch? You took all of two seconds to brush your teeth after you put on clothes off the floor. Who? I, the entitlement <laughs> is astounding. You put in zero effort to be a person, and you're going to test her? No, absolutely. And the fucking cult? Like, no. So, is it worse because it's the cult somehow? So I just, his entire essence disgusts me. And I. And then we find out late in the movie that it's. He's just, a fucking virgin. A, and you know why he's a virgin? Because he's a piece of shit. That's the most truthful moment in the film. Of course your dick is dry because you're trash. All the women that have not slept with you to date were right. They were correct in that choice. And you have the audacity to give somebody a test. No, no, nope. <laughs> Okay, what was the longest run from scrimmage by a rookie in his first game? Alan Amici. Hey, we heard that in here. I'm disqualifying this question. I knew that. 79-yard run, opening That's day That's good, Shreve. You blew that one. Oh, I'm sorry. I got excited. It's hey, one of the few I questions that, that I knew. One. Sorry, Elise. How many more? I don't know. I lost count. Elise's mother's on the phone. How's she doing? Guys think it could go either way. Either way. Okay. And I love I love the fact that we never see her. No. His fiance we at the wedding. Her. We don't see her. We see the back she of does, her. Because she doesn't matter. No, she doesn't. <laughs> she doesn't She Again, exist. She's, an ad- she's an idea. She is a thing. She's... This poor girl who studied Ugh. everything there is to know about football. Wasn't even worth a cameo. <laughs> no. Because, again, he should just go fuck his friends. That's <laughs> what you should do. Do you want to pair these guys off with each other? How, how would you set up Well, these? obviously, Because there's six of them, so they pair off. Gutenberg okay. and uh, uh, Riser. <laughs> That's, those are two yeah, people. Yeah, they are sort of a married that couple. That would be together for 90 years. <laughs> they would be together forever. Uh, what I love about that dynamic is 
Riser is totally manipulative and needling mm-hmm. him and stealing his food and mooching from him. The guys in the group all blame Gutenberg. <laughs> Every time Gutenberg protests that, you are, they're like, you know what, what are you doing? giving her a hard time you know for? Just, Just give him the sandwich. <laughs> It's fantastic. <laughs> so you're right. Yes, that is a good married couple right there. They would there. be together. Okay. And it would be lovely because they would be an old married couple. <laughs> Even in their 20s, they'd be an old married couple. Uh, who else would be together? Who am I missing? Oh, so uh, Fenwick. What's his name? Fenwick? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was... I got it. All right. Fenwick and... You know what? Because I hate Shrevy, I would give Fenwick to Shrevy. <laughs> You, I don't. I don't think they'd be think, good together, and that's fine because Shrevy deserves a terrible life, and so you get the drunk. Take care of the drunk. <laughs> no, because that leaves Boogie and Billy. That's not a good. That pairing. would be interesting, though. Okay, you just got a little gleam in your eye there that seems because I think they a, would just like of fight. a sexual nature. I, no, no, I just think they would fight. So yeah, that's how that would go. Okay. <laughs> Oh, I like a couple times they ask Eddie why he's getting married, and he very defensively says, well, it's it's not like I'm just doing it to make her happy, <laughs> when it's like, that it's is obviously, like, you have just been talked yeah. into this. No, and at some point he was like, you know, we've been dating for five years, so this is what you do, which right. is like, okay, well, or you could not. And the sad thing is, the, what comes after this is they all have kids. Yes. That's the next thing They all have very do. unhappy lives right. and unhappy marriages, and it's a sad, sad thing. And in fact, none of these stories really get resolved, do they? That's the other sort of non-traditional narrative of this. We never find out what happens with Billy and Barbara and their inconvenient fetus. Yeah. Uh, How how, how do you think that's going to go? I think she goes and has her own baby by herself and raises... In 1959? Why the fuck not? It's easier said than done. Well, people did it. It happened. But no, she's not going to marry that asshole. (laughs) No. I think she will stand firm in her single motherhood and raise a wonderful child. <laughs> and Shrevy and Beth? Divorce. <laughs> With possible record-breaking. Definite record-breaking. It's just, it's going to happen. I mean, they had that little moment at the wedding at the end of the film where he was like, I'm going to take you to the... I'm going to take you to the Poconos, the Poconos or somewhere. Or some mm-hmm. bullshit like that. And she's like, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> no. You know why it's amazing? Because I'm going to dump your body off a boat. <laughs> It's a good place to die and leave you and come back and have a new life. And what, and what about Eddie and his new bride? Just, first of all, he's never had sex because so the first night is trash. It's just, <laughs> he says that. He says, I don't know be, what I'm doing and neither does she. So this is going to be terrible. Garbage. Garbage. <laughs> so if, <laughs> if they can't get that part right, I don't know what else is because are they just going to talk about the Colts? They're going to the be fucking the Colts marching yeah. music. Mm-hmm. It's not good. No. no. So I don't have high hopes for that. <laughs> He's going to be living with his mom eating fried bologna sandwiches. Oh, and Boogie apparently ends up with uh, Jane Chisholm, Which, as in the Chisholm Trail. Why? Why would she waste <laughs> that is to- her time? That is totally random. <laughs> with him, you could look at him and tell he's not worth anything. Why are you fabulous Ralph Lauren woman on a horse? <laughs> Talking to this person who stole a horse and is trespassing on your property. He, he maybe he borrowed the horse. It's my understanding that horses are expensive, and you don't just let any rando ride them. Yeah, this and is, just like, no, this is true. So, and there is no reason on earth he would be able to ride no, a horse at all. You live in Baltimore. What are you doing? No. So that was a that was just imaginary because it's not that's not what would happen. Here's how much I hated them. So 
This, this very much reminded me of Beautiful Girls. <laughs> it, it is very... Like, I the think, archetypes of the yeah, dudes no, are it, pretty it totally much is. the exact same. There's no way that Beautiful Girls was Happens not made with this movie Diana, in mind, right? right? And Beautiful Girls... Which is a movie we like. Is a movie we like, but has the big problem of Natalie Portman, right? Like, it's a big fucking problem. That whole aspect of the film is a huge problem. And yet, I prefer it <laughs> wow. to Diner. All of those guys? All of those guys. I prefer fucking, what's his name? White dude that wants to be black, but then fucks up all the time on Twitter. Uh, yeah, Rappaport. Yes. <laughs> wow. I would rather that is spend a bold time statement. with fucking Rappaport <laughs> than these dudes. Because he's the one that starts hitting on Natalie Portman in yes. that movie after Timothy Hutton has left. It's such a problem. <laughs> it is such a problem. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, Natalie Portman was pretty adorable in that okay, movie. Okay, do not say that because it's not okay to say that. It's not okay. They make references to Pooh. It's not okay. Winnie the Pooh. Oh, they Winnie have the whole the conversation Pooh. about Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, they do, yeah. It's not, and you're, you're talking to a child. <laughs> it's inappropriate. So that's how I feel about the film. I'm more Beautiful Girls than I am Diner. Even given... I hadn't thought of that, but that almost is a remake of yes, Diner. it really is. Yes. And instead of them playing the music in the sad strip club, he's playing Sweet Caroline in the bar mm-hmm. with Uma Thurman and the whole thing. So, yeah. <laughs> No. And the sad part is, mm-hmm. because that shows you, those dudes are what? Supposed to be in their like 30s, 40s? Which, which dudes? Beautiful girls. Uh, Maybe 30. 30s? Yeah. They have not gotten better. No, no, we don't. So that's the other thing. No, it's we like, don't ever get no better. There's no point where they get better. They're still hitting on Natalie Portman. <laughs> they're still revenge shoveling snow to their fucking ex's door. Like, they're still... <laughs> Incapable of interacting as a human being. I just, okay. I don't, mm-mm. I don't know what the fuck's wrong with y'all. I don't know. What, like, it's like, it has to be like genetic or cellular. I don't know what it is. But at no point do you get I never better. made you do a football quiz. I just made you, you made watch, me watch a whole Buffy bunch. You made me watch Buffy and all this bullshit that I didn't want to watch. And I sat there and I did it. And which you're makes still, me, you're still doing it. I am the dumb girl. <laughs> You're still uh, watching movies oh my God. you don't want to watch I'm, every This week. is a wrap. This is the last episode. This has opened <laughs> my eyes. I am still that fucking girl. Oh, my God. This is what they refer to in addiction circles as a moment of clarity. <laughs> <laughs> the cycle of abuse stops now. Fuck this. You want to talk about how we alphabetize our books, too? I'm breaking all your DVDs. <laughs> I'm tearing all this shit up. Burning it. All of it. That's our show. We want to thank you for listening and assuming Nikia actually comes back this time, we hope you'll join us again for the next episode of The Unenthusiastic Critic. As we record this, Sam Mendes' World War I film 1917 is about to open in theaters, and the chief gimmick of that film is that the entire thing appears to take place in one long, continuous shot. And that gives us the thin excuse to sit down on our next episode and watch the first major motion picture to attempt this trick, Alfred Hitchcock's Rope from 1948. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, follow us on Twitter at Free Range Critic, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. In any of these places, we encourage you to leave a comment on the show or suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means conning your partner into watching movies they really, really don't want to watch. <laughs> <laughs>